And it's the Jim Eskimen podcast for January 19th, 2015. Here we are now in the middle of this year. I already feel like the year is off to a swinging crazy start. Uh, I've already done a bit of traveling. I've been to the Caribbean. I've been to Vancouver. And I'm back in L.A. now. And uh, things are moving. Things are moving along. I'm gainfully employed. And, uh, you know, I've been a freelancer for so long, since about 1983, that... uh, I don't get nervous when I look at my calendar, which is now a, an electronic calendar, and uh, when I see nothing, nothing at all in the uh, entries for the, the days and even weeks ahead. It's like, it's like looking under the Christmas tree in October. I don't panic because I know December will roll around and there'll be something under the tree. I used to carry around a paper calendar, one of these bound books that they used to sell at Woolworths. It was a nice little bound book. I wish I'd kept them. That's obviously what they were for because they were nicely bound. And it would be great to see those notes of all the places I used to go. I used to go to the same places over and over again in New York. I used to go to the same casting people, you know, desperately struggling to get a job in show business. And eventually, you know, I succeeded. I remember when I got my first radio commercial, my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, my my lover, she was my lover, and uh, she became my wife uh, I remember my wife was like, what's the big deal, you know? And I, I, for me, it was like, no, no, this is, this is the first step on the path that I want to go down. And I still remember it was a dumb radio commercial. I don't remember what it was for, but I remember that it was like uh, two, a man and a woman talking, husband and wife things. It used to be de rigueur. You used to have those on the radio. You had to have commercials like that. A guy and a gal chatting about stuff at home casually, you know. There was even a famous couple, the Molson couple, that did commercials. And uh, one of the Molson couple was Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam. But you wouldn't know that from listening to the Molson couple chat. They were just, they had this rapport. And even though it was totally scripted, they made it sound completely improvised and kind of flirty and kind of fun. And it cut through. You know, nowadays, uh, it's it's I imagine if you heard a Molson couple ad, it would be just as boring as the rest of the radio ads that you hear. But nobody even tries anymore. I find with radio, they're all just doing this kind of template uh, thing. But anyway, back in the day, back in 1980, maybe maybe 1985, I think I booked my first radio commercial and it was, uh, yeah, uh, husband and wife or or girlfriend, boyfriend kind of thing. And I was just so tickled. And I knew, I knew that it was the beginning of something. And uh, like today, for example, I worked, uh, I did a voiceover. I did two voiceovers technically for the very popular show, The Big Bang Theory. Can't tell you what it was about. Actually, I don't even really know. Uh, I auditioned and they said, okay, you got both these parts, both of them. That's nice. And uh, come down to Warner Brothers. You know, I planned my day in a very complicated way that got me the least done with the most amount of exercise. And the the way I did that was I had to bring my car in. And the car place, I realized, the Toyota dealership is not that far from Warner Brothers, relatively speaking, if you were a New Yorker. So, you know, it would be like the equivalent of like going, you know, I could walk from 23rd Street to 67th Street. You know, that wouldn't be so bad. I'm not going to take a cab. I'm not going to take a train. It's a beautiful day. So in my mind, that was what I was getting into with Warner Bros. I thought, I'll drop my car off at the Prius place, and then I'll walk to Warner Bros. I'll get a good exercise, and they'll work on the car for a couple hours, and I'll come back and pick it up. I'll get, you know, that's a good, that's a good thing to do. Because it's difficult to get your car in. You know this. And then you got to go pick it up, but you don't have a car. That means somebody's got to get you. It seemed too complicated to me. So I blithely thought, well, this is how it'll work. 
I'll go out there. I'll drop off the car. I'll walk to Warner Brothers. I'll do my job. Maybe I'll hang around there for a little while, do a little work. And, uh, you know, regardless, sometimes these jobs, these voiceover jobs on a TV show, take literally 10 minutes. Other times they go, you know what? We're going to shoot a few scenes first. Then we'll get to you, blah, blah, blah. I had that recently with Mike and Molly. I was there for four hours. My actual work time, probably a half hour. So I thought, well, either way, this will work out. So to make a long and boring story a little shorter, I will talk faster. So I uh, took my Prius in, dropped it off. And the Prius is a brand new Prius that I'm leasing. And it's got one of these, what I call a proximity key, which means that you don't actually plug the key into anything. It's a little plastic box. And if you're anywhere near the car, you can start it, get in and all that stuff. But I've made the mistake several times, as I did today, of walking away with the key in my pocket. So I leave it there in the, the busy driveway of the Prius place, and I say my goodbyes, and I blithely walk off about 25 minutes in the direction of Warner Brothers. So I'm more than halfway there. I'm probably three-quarters of the way there. As I say, I've expended 25 minutes, and I get a call from the Prius place. You took your key with you. <sighs> well, my car is not going to get done if they can't pull it into a bay. So I turn around, and a little more briskly now, I walk back to the Prius place, realizing that now this is making the time that I had allotted to get to Warner Brothers just a little bit tight. So I, I hot-foot it back to the Prius place. I put the key in the car, and I turn around, and I start to go back. Anyway, I made it to Warner Brothers in time and uh, made it onto the set. And then they said, oh, great, you're here. We've got a dressing room for you. I was like, really? A dressing room so I can change clothes to do my voiceover. And they said, yeah, well, we've got one for you. So I went in the trailer that they gave me, a little trailer. Not a bad one, not a really teeny one, actually a pretty decent one. And I went in, and they gave me all the paperwork to sign. And if you're a, an actor in L.A., you know that, or anywhere probably, there's just mountains of paperwork to sign. They want to know all about you. They want to know, you know, are you the right age? They want to give you all this advice about how to deal with social media and anyway, you spend a lot of time signing, initialing, putting your... I must have put my social security number 10 times. Anyway, that takes a long time. That probably took 15 minutes. Then I gave it to the nice production assistant, Nikki. And then she came back in a little while and said, we gave you the wrong forms. So I filled out the right forms. That took another 10 minutes. Then they said, we're ready for you. So I went in and literally six takes of two different parts. So three takes of each. Boom, I'm done. Probably four minutes. So I go back to the dressing room, and they call from the Prius place. Your car's ready. Oh, well, great. I won't I won't stick around. They finish that very quickly. North Hollywood Toyota. Big shout out to them. They're great. And I hike back out to the Prius place, and all was well. So I walked about five miles, but uh, that was cool because I worked a very little bit, and I got my exercise, and I got my car fixed. Aren't you Aren't you glad? Anyway, that's the kind of silly stuff that I do. And when I'm trying to multitask, and I realize... I am a um, inveterate or uh, incurable multitasker. I multitask while I'm multitasking. I'm doing other things right now. You can't see, but I'm knitting an overcoat for somebody out of yarn. It's going to look horrible. But yeah, I'm, I'm always I'm thinking of things while I'm doing other things. And I realize that's a strength and a weakness. It depends on how you utilize that habit. Of course, our civilization is now set up so that we can be multitaskers more simply and more outrageously than ever before, uh, as you can type and text and you know speak. I don't have to explain this to you. You're probably multitasking right now. You're probably listening to this while you're doing something else. Maybe you're driving. Maybe you're doing a painting. Maybe you're uh, uh, busy doing yoga. You know, I, I imagine a lot of people listen to my podcast while they're doing yoga because I have such an intrinsically deep message of relaxation. 
Anyway, we can multitask like crazy, and it only really gets to be a problem when, as it happens with me sometimes, I realize I've really spread myself too thin. And I'm, you know, working on something in the kitchen, and I go, oh, well, I'm bored with how long it's taking for the butter to, you know, seep into the toast, and so I'm just going to do that other thing, which is right over here. And that, of course, winds up with you know, smoke in the kitchen because I forget about the toast because I get interested in something else. And that's not so good, right? We all do that. We all make that mistake. On the other hand, multitasking is is a fantastic thing if you can really ride that wave. Maybe that's how I'm a surfer. I'm always trying to figure out how am I a surfer or as good as a surfer, you know, because it seems like the surfers I know, they're a bunch of happy people. They've always got a smile on their face. They've always got a little bit of salt rind around their nostrils. That to me is the ultimate Anyway, I wanted to talk a little bit about, not about any of that, by the way. So just forget about that. All the surfing, all the Prius stuff, uh, uh, the Big Bang Theory. Forget the Big Bang Theory. By the way, it's a theory. Nobody ever proved it. Big Bang, my eye. Maybe it was a big thunk. They don't call it the Big Thunk Theory, but somebody thunk it up. I wanted to talk to you about uh, your voice. I am sure that you remember, as I do, the first time in your life that you heard your recorded voice. You remember that moment? How awful it was? It probably still resonates with you. It may still make the hair on the back of your neck stand up, if you have hair on the back of your neck. It's a, it's a very sobering moment in the life of any human being. I don't think anybody, if you queried everybody on the planet, I think you'd find a very low, almost you know microscopically low percentage of people would say, oh yes, I recall that moment when I first heard my voice. I was quite satisfied. Everyone else goes, oh, God, no, no, it can't be. It's like a cruel joke. It's like somebody sat you down and then surprised you and said, we're going to show you, you know, what you really look like, you know, in this this three-dimensional model. They took an old squirrel skeleton and they covered it with the fur of a dead donkey and then they put a clown nose on it and some chattering teeth and a fright wig and you know a bulbous klaxon bulb for a nose and and then shook it in front of you and said this is what you look like aren't you happy that's the way it is with your voice because of course our voices we learn later after we are revived you know with smelling salts we learn that our voices don't sound to us the way they sound to people who don't have happen to be inside our bodies. And so we hear, we hear our, the sound of our voice. It's a beautiful, often a deep, resonant, kind of warm and textured and very expressive kind of uh, emanation. It's a, it's a beautiful wavelength. It's a, it's a virtuosic instrument. It's like a, an oboe or a, a viola or something really human and wonderful. Then we hear it on the recording device it sounds like some small rodent being slowly strangled with a pipe cleaner. It's, it's a ghastly, horrible moment when you hear that sound and you realize, oh my gosh, that's what I sound like to other people? No wonder people won't talk to me. No wonder nobody voted for me for school president. No wonder, blah, blah, blah. All your failures and sometimes can be seen to come from this one factor. My voice, I sound like, a, like the squeaky wheel who never got the grease. Now, as a professional... You have an opportunity if you press on and really try to be a voice artist. And those of you who are, have ambitions this way, I recommend this highly. Record yourself as often as possible. Maybe you have all your life and you've already gotten over this. But there is this hurdle to get over, and that is the dreadful aversion to hearing your own native voice from, from outside. And as a piece of advice to you, if you're just starting out, 
use every opportunity you can to record your voice and force yourself to listen to it over and over again. And after a while, you know, you, you kind of forget about how crummy and tinny you sound and you just go, oh, I'm familiar. That's my voice. And there's no longer a barrier uh, between, you know, the way you sound and, and the way you'd like to sound. Also, once you hear your voice a few times, like a lot of radio DJs, they alter their voice to sound more like the voice they probably heard in their head. I had an uncle, uh, my great uncle Gordy, who always talked like this. It was the most uh, affected thing in the world. But uh, I realized that, uh, well, that's the way he wanted to sound. And so he had created an artistic product of his own voice. Now, we do it for comic effect. You know, to sound like a radio DJ is, isn't exactly coin of the realm these days. Uh, but back in the day, that was how you cut through and that's how you integrated with rock and roll. You know, you had a voice like this. You had a big, strong, strident kind of selly delivery. That's the kind of announcer that when you see at the bottom of the script, uh, if you're auditioning and it says, we do not want an announcer type, it's guys like that that, that caused it. Not out of any malice or any in incompetence even, but just out of, hey, styles change. So we don't want to hear that announcer voice anymore. Now we want to hear a guy It kind of sounds like this. He doesn't really project very much. And maybe he goes up at the end and, and speaks, you know, kind of like everything's a question. You know, Ira Glass or something like that. That's that's what we want to hear. Why? Because that cuts through because that sounds like a real person to us. That sounds like the people we talk to at Starbucks and the people we talk to standing at the side of the road with a sign saying, please help. So if you're at all, you know, uh, tempted to get into the voice acting business and to pursue it or just for the art form of it, just to amuse yourself and your friends or to just to see, you know, what 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 becomes of this? What is down this this path? then I advise you, record yourself a lot. And now there's every opportunity in the world to do that. You can do it on your phone. I don't have to tell you. There's a million ways to do it. I used to do phone messages endlessly. I used to, uh, I used to do it religiously all the time. I'd spend uh, literally hours composing that phone message. And I had an old uh, cassette, tiny micro cassette phone machine in New York. And it would, you know, it was 30 seconds or nothing. I mean, it couldn't be 29 seconds. It had to be 30 seconds, and it, it, the beep would happen. As I recall, it was like composing a haiku just to, uh, just to get this thing to work. And I'd get so excited, and I'd try to put music in and sound effects, and the timing had to be really perfect. They were real little creations. And then I'd get all excited, and, and nobody would call because nobody knew who I was. So I would go down to a payphone and call myself over and over again. But see... I had to listen to my voice over and over again, A, to do the recording, and B, out of frustration and not being called, I would go and call myself and listen to it again. And that gives you more familiarity, more familiarity. And it would be like, I guess, a baseball player or an athlete like a golfer will watch endless videos of himself doing his stride and doing his swing, and and people will analyze it, and people say, work on this now, try this, you know, and, and you get a familiarity and that helps you because you just have more knowledge and more control of the instrument, whatever it happens to be. In my case, it's the voice. Anyway, record yourself. Do a podcast like I do. And uh, I listen to this podcast also religiously, and I'm always so impressed by what I have to say. Um, anyway, I hope that's helpful to you. It really is a very important thing. You need to get over the humiliation of hearing your own voice. Now, the, the lucky thing is, and I'll advise you this, because some of you out there go, oh, no. I know how bad I sound. I don't need to be subjected to that. I'm not going to force anybody else to listen to it. Give it a try because what happens is it wears off. The humiliation wears off. The awful horror 
will wear off after a while and you won't have that anymore. But you got to press through. It's kind of like when you get into a cold pool, you got to kind of splash around a little bit and feel the pins and needles of the icy water. And then after a while, you're like, ah, no, it's no, no big deal. So that's how it is. Give it a try. You may have to listen to, you know, hours and hours of yourself speaking before you really get used to it. But then at that point, you'll know what you're working with and you'll know how to adjust things and you'll know really and truly how you sound to other people. And you know what? That's pretty valuable because other people listen to you and they respond to you. So you can get done what you need to get done. You can get people to do what you want them to do or just get into better communication with them. But it starts with knowing how the heck you sound. Here's a little something. I'm here with Spike DeFay. Spike is always at the forefront of uh, extreme sports and uh, um, at the outdoors and bringing experiences to people uh, that they wouldn't ordinarily have. Uh, people of all uh, economic uh, strata, but particularly the very wealthy. Spike, you've got something that's just extraordinary. First of all, thanks for coming into the studio. I know you're, you're busy with a lot of the things and touring the world and always on the run. I'm really happy to be here. Well, great. Now, I want to talk specifically about this special service that you're offering now to Mount Everest because uh-huh. uh, uh, Mount Everest, of course, is the symbol of uh, so many business people and so many uh, sportsmen and enthusiasts sure and athletes look at that as literally right. as their Everest. Right. And, uh of course, it takes so a lot of people don't realize it takes months uh, to prepare uh, to go and and really uh, mount the summit, uh, but you've reduced this now to a single afternoon, uh-huh. and you're allowing people to be whisked to the top of Mount Everest with your special uh, hover helicopter and right. down and safely down to earth. Uh, it's a tremendous project. Has anything like that ever been done before? Never has been done before. And by the way, it's called a Hoover Copter. So this is a great opportunity for a businessman who right. doesn't have a lot of time. Doesn't have a lot of time, but wants to experience something. Uh-huh. And sitting at the top of Mount Everest, they don't have time to train, perhaps. But this does not require a lot of training. No, it doesn't require a lot of training. And 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 it does appeal to the businessman especially. I actually got the idea. You know, I used to be a, I used to be a pencil pusher. Mm-hmm. I used to be behind a desk, and I got so, hard to imagine. Well, I know. Look, looking at me now, I know. I, I I've been outdoors so, so much. Anyway, I was so tired of looking at inspirational posters that they put up around many offices. You know, be the best you can be, uh, enthusiasm, people in a skull all rowing together. And very often there would be a picture of Mount Everest. And I thought, well, that's unattainable. Of course anybody can get in a boat and pull an oar. But Mount Everest, that's a rarefied thing. And who has the time? At that time, I didn't even have the time, but I wanted to get to Everest. And I thought, how do I get there and get there fast? Mm-hmm. And of course, Everest is very physically dangerous. Is uh, the, the cliffs of Everest still, uh, there are many bodies of people that tried to make it to the summit and perished in the uh, inevitable storms that roar through. There have been so many articles, essays, books about how dangerous it is, and I wanted to bypass all of that. Mm-hmm. And so you've invented the Hoover Copter. Now, how long does it take to go? You're not even a base camp. Base camp is, uh, is like at 18,000 feet. Right. You're down at, at basically at sea level. We are at sea level. In fact, your adventure starts from a resort spa of your choosing, because there are several. Mm-hmm. But you uh, recommend the Mongolia Hyatt. We have, we have a relationship with them, and uh, we've built in uh, special discounts mm-hmm. and uh, added attractions. It's a full resort and spa. Mm-hmm. But you're at sea level. They, mm-hmm. they, get, they roll out of bed. They go to the, the brunch. That's right. You go to a brunch. Your day begins by sleeping in, because sleep is very important. 
and it's a great brunch. It's a all-you-can-eat brunch, and uh, you go in groups of five, and so you line up, and uh, you can eat heartily, and at that brunch is where you look over a very, very small brochure. Mm-hmm. So you get a little orientation. A little orientation. It's there that they pick out their seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's in a the lot ho- of fighting over the, uh, over the window seat. Oh, oh there certainly is. You, pick, you, uh, you hit the nail on the head, and that is a good competitive spirit to have. Mm-hmm. So you've eaten heartily. You've looking over a small, colorful brochure, uh, laminated. You can take that brochure with you. And from there, you're whisked onto the Hoover Copter, and you're beginning your ascent of Everest. Mm-hmm. Now, that's, So you're going from basically from sea level up to 29,000 feet. Right. Uh, and how long does that take? 27 minutes. 27, so less than a half an hour. You're there at the top of Everest. Then they uh, they, they clamber out. Uh, your photographer takes pictures of them. Uh, they look uh, victorious up there on the summit. And then before they really start to feel the effects of the oxygen, I assume they get back into Back into the Hoover Copter as fast as possible. Now, here is interesting thing. We have to put them in the right gear, mm-hmm. even though it's not totally necessary because they're only going to be exposed to the elements for about 36 seconds. That Hoover Copter is pretty well heated on the inside, isn't it? It's like a microwave in there, and it has to be. So you are whisked out. You have your oxygen mask on. Mm-hmm. You're asked to remove your oxygen mask so you can get a nice pearly white smile. We take a couple of pictures. You view north, south, east, and west, and then you are directed right back into the Hoover Copter. And Spike, this is an incredible opportunity. I'm sure there's a lot of executives out there that are going to want to take an afternoon, go up to Mount Everest, and feel the incredible victory of standing at that summit and realizing that they made it. Yeah, we want to let people know that anything, anything is possible, especially, especially hitting Everest. So no longer do you have to be a pencil pusher looking at a poster that that talks about Everest, why don't you go to Everest and uh, come with me, Spike Dufay. Thanks so much. Well, I'm happy to say that the H&R Block commercial that I uh, shot back in October in which I talked about in podcast number 12 with Randy Crawlman, the one where I'm the German um, language teacher teaching a guy to say nine, nine, nine over and over again, that is running. Perhaps you've seen it. I'm grateful for the way it came out. It looks terrific, and I'm getting a lot of nice reports about it. I'm sure people get sick of it pretty soon. Anyway, that's a nice uh, spot out there that I hope you get a chance to see. If not, you can always go to YouTube. Just plug in H&R Block and 9, the German word 9, or uh, or just turn on any major television show right now or sporting event seems to have it. Uh, Parks and Recreations beginning their final season. I do have one episode in it. I don't know where it will fall. I hope you'll enjoy it when you see it. It's a great show, Parks and Rec. I, I, as I said before, I wish I'd been on it more often. I should have campaigned much more heavily, but it took me a long time. I'm, I was late to the party and realizing what a great show it is. But uh, Parks and Recreation starring the, the brilliant Amy Poehler. Check that out. It's going to be a great final season, I'm sure. I am also doing voices for the uh, Marvel series Avengers Assemble. It's on a Disney channel, not the Disney channel, but a Disney channel, of which I'm sure there are many. Uh, I don't think I'm at liberty to say what characters I play, but I am part of the Marvel Universe. I've been doing that for a little while, and uh, it's a beautiful-looking show. It's really quite high-tech animation and a great story. You know, it's the whole Avengers thing which just goes on and on and on. I'm wondering when Avengers and Star Wars are going to completely overlap and become one big-ass show. It seems like that's in the very near future. The impression, guys, I can't say anything yet, but there's good news ahead. And uh, those of you who have been fans of the impression, guys, uh, be sure and catch up on the first six episodes that are on YouTube on the Soul Pancake channel. And uh, I think we'll have some good news real soon. I don't know if I told you this, but Ross Marquand 
my co-star in The Impression Guys, had some great news. He is now a series regular in The Walking Dead in the next season of The Walking Dead. I guess that's season five. So eat your heart out and, and every other organ uh, for people who love Ross Marquand. You're going to be able to see him. I don't know what his character is. That's a big secret. Uh, he, he didn't even tell me for the last few months. He didn't tell any of us. He wasn't allowed to contractually, and he's an honest guy. And he did not tell us what he was up to for months and months in Atlanta. But it turns out he was fleeing people that were going to devour him. Hey, I could have told him, that's Atlanta. Anyway, that's pretty exciting, and, uh, well, we can't wait to see him on that. He's a great actor, so it was only a matter of time that he got picked up on a, a series, and uh, hopefully he'll be picked up on two series, The Impression Guys and The Walking Dead. The Walking Impression Guys might make a nice show, a little bit of a hybrid, just like uh, the Avengers and Star Wars getting together. Hey, maybe they could all get together. The Walking Star Wars Avenger Impression Guys. Sounds like a good show to me. Hey, I'll talk to you next week. Hope you have a great week. And uh, thanks again to Jeff Levin, as always, for the music and for Tate Rupert for the improv. I'll see you guys soon. Nine!